Well, hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the Nefesh podcast. So glad that you are with us. And I think this is episode 34. I've kind of lost count at this point. So um, those of you who have like a savant type of mind and you can remember exactly, you can you can correct me, but it's great to have you with us. And, and this week, I really want to talk about this idea of failure, failure and the soul. You know, many years ago, I had subscribed to John Maxwell's like leadership club and every month you would get a cassette tape or a CD in the mail. That's how long ago it was that I would still get cassette tapes. I mean, my car back then 20 years ago had a cassette player. And those of you who are listening, who've never even heard of a cassette tape, that just really makes me very sad at how old I am. But I would get these cassette tapes or CDs in the mail and it would be his like his monthly leadership uh, uh, input, some type of thought or lesson or you know something that good that he would put out for for people. And I did that for a couple of years. It was really good. John Maxwell, um, really incredible leadership guy. Really, even though there have been leadership experts for many years, I think over the last 40, 50 years, we've really gotten into understanding how important leadership is in every position, whether you are in ministry or you're a politician or you're just just a parent. Sorry, I didn't mean to minimize that because I know that parenting is hard. But even if you don't necessarily get money for what you do, you are a leader because leaders have influence. And so uh, Maxwell really was able to break it down into simple terms and understanding and brought leadership to such a great level and to so many more people than had been getting it before. And, and so I really dove into it. I mean, I, I recognized, um, as soon as I've heard him speak, I recognized, wow, the things that I didn't know, the things that I wanted to know. And, and back then I was just starting out in ministry. Um, and really, I, I think I understood how much I didn't know and how much I wanted to improve in leadership. And so I just, I felt like I absorbed everything that he wrote and taught and read every book of his at that time, maybe several times. Uh, and so I could just try to understand how to do better as a leader. One of his books has impacted me so much. There's a couple of his books that have really stood out to me over the years. The, the first one is the 21 indispensable qualities of a leader. And I I still recommend that book to any leader today, particularly his, his, um, the, the quality of charisma and the idea that charisma is really about being more focused on other people than you are about yourself. He, it just makes it so simple that that truly is the essence of why people are drawn to us when we care about them, not, not for the form of manipulation or trying to get something out of them but really, really care about them. People will follow us if they know that we care about them. And another of his books, Failing Forward, has, right there along with 21 Indispensable Qualities of Leader, those two books have made such a difference in my life, in my leadership, in my ministry. And Failing Forward is good because it's all about failure. It's all about how to turn failure and failings into um, opportunities to really just get going and keep going. 
And, you know, some of it, it honestly, and, and uh, with all due respect, Dr. John Maxwell, some of it can be a little bit uh, self-helpy where it's, it, it doesn't necessarily dig to the bottom or to the depth of what is going on. And that's okay. That's why you have people like me who want to analyze and explore everything until my brain hurts. Uh, but it's good in that it really, it gives people the permission to fail. That is not a concept that we understand very well in Christianity. The permission to fail. Especially in certain segments of Christianity. I would say uh, the, the holiness tradition and out of the holiness tradition comes Pentecostals, Methodists, um, uh, Pentecostal holiness movements, um, and others along those lines, I would say Baptists don't come out of the holiness movement, but they come out of the reformed tradition. Uh, and those that are, that, that tend to be a little bit more strict or rigid when it comes to sin now. And, and I say that with this qualification, sin corrupts. And it will absolutely and does absolutely destroy us when we are not in the process of spiritual formation in the positive way, allowing Christ and the Holy Spirit to transform us on a daily basis. Sin will eat away like leprosy at, at our lives. Sin is not good for us. And more than it being evil and awful and something that God, you know, can't stand. That's kind of how we've portrayed it. Another way of looking at it is to say that sin is so incredibly unhealthy for us. It will kill you. It does kill people. It kills their whole life and especially their soul. So sin is not something that we, we want. It's not something that we advocate for. And yet, and yet, failure has, is a different type of thing. Failure and, and being perfect have been wrapped up in a type of, uh, I want to say a Western uh, mindset, but it's, it's really true that you see failure as a bad thing in really a lot of cultures, cultures that have what's known as a shame and shame honor type of thing where if you make a mistake or you mess up you're not just bringing shame on yourself but shame on your entire family and that that type of shame is really hard to shake off the idea that you are letting down not only yourself but those that you love I that is a hard thing I mean the positives of that type of culture are that you have a community around you that's keeping you accountable, but, but very easily those communities can turn into shame inducing guilt inducing communities that don't actually bring about love and grace and growth communities all around the world. And for, for as long as humans have been on the earth have struggled to understand and accept what failure is. And so we don't want to equate failure on the same level of sin necessarily, although some failure can be sinful. And let me again kind of take another perspective at sin. 
Sin is anything that pulls us away from God, but sin doesn't have to be, especially at the beginning, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that looks really bad and looks really evil. But anything that pulls me away from God is eventually, is eventually sinful. Menzies and Horton in their book, Bible Doctrines, uh, a book specifically written about the 16 fundamentals of of, of uh, 16 fun- fundamental truths that are part of the assemblies of God, fellowship, and doctrine. They talk about sin being really anything that pulls us out, out of a relationship with God. And I like that definition because it really brings it down to a basic level. We, we tend to look at sin and evil as something that is uh, just all-powerful and it just overwhelms us and we don't have any control over it. And it's something that's like an evil monster that's just waiting around every corner to grab us. But really, it is anything that pulls us out of that harmony and relationship with God. And it's and, and therefore is unhealthy. But failure, failure and making mistakes, while they can be sinful or not necessarily... And they are also, to a certain extent, inevitable. Now, when I say that, I recognize that there's some types of theology that disagree with that. That there are some theology, there are some types of theology that believe that once you and I accept Jesus into our life, we really are covered, sanctified fully, and um, there's a, that sanctification process doesn't need to go any further because it's done and it it is not necessarily working in us and i know i'm not doing a good job of explaining it but they would say that really no more mistakes or imperfections exist well i'm of the theology that believes that that our sanctification yes happens in an instant but it's also ongoing and it's something that i process through each and every day, not by myself, but through Christ, as Christ works in me. As Philippians 2.12 says, Paul, in writing to the Philippian church, says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So as I am working out my salvation each day, as I am in process, as I am growing and pursuing Christ, God is working in me. So the sanctification process, the growing and healing process is working in me as I continue to walk with Christ. So in that vein, failure and mistakes are inevitable. I recognize that I am not yet perfect and will not ever be perfect in the way we understand perfection today. Matthew 5:38, Jesus tells his disciples to be perfect as God is perfect. But that word perfect in the Greek means whole, mature, complete. Perfection was was especially in that day and in that that kind of I would suggest Jewish understanding was an idea of wholeness and maturity and completeness, not perfection as in without any blemish or problem or 
issue. But mature. I would look at, I would, I would definitely look at some people who are more mature, even those who aren't necessarily older, but those who just seem to have a maturity about themselves. And if they are followers of Jesus, I would look at them and say that they are more whole or mature or complete than others, not because they are perfect or heading towards perfection, but because in their maturity, they have learned from theirs and others' mistakes. And they've been able to to um, either rise above those failures and mistakes and keep going and learn from them and not continue to do them. Or they have seen others make those mistakes and chosen not to engage in those behaviors. And in that way, there is a maturity about them that seems very whole. Uh, Again, as if it's on its way towards completeness. Perfect in our Western understanding of perfection, we will never be. I do not believe that that's what Jesus is calling us to, an unattainable goal. I read an article years ago by, by I, I don't remember the article name, and I think it was by a psychologist who said that, that um, aiming for perfection or a, and aiming for that unattainable, unattainable goal is one of the things that causes depression. That when we are striving for something we really can't ever hit, there is a defeating mechanism that takes place within us and it brings about such, uh, such depression and burnout because we were never meant to aim for perfection. In fact, we were never really aim- meant to aim for spiritual growth and spiritual formation as the goal. We were always meant to aim for Jesus. Hebrews 12.1 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Actually, it might be Hebrews 12.1 and 2. To fix our eyes in Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the, the writer and the perfecter of our faith. And that our eyes are to be fixed on him, not, not the goal of being perfect or the goal of ridding ourselves of sin. Because it can't be done. But I can focus on Jesus. And I can embrace mistakes and allow them to be part of that forming process that helps me to learn and to grow. Again, in our Western world, and again, I don't know that this is just true to the Western culture. Uh, It's true really to a lot of cultures, but especially in the West, we really do uh, mark ourselves as successful or uh, failures based upon wealth, possessions, positions, power, grades. I've been in education for most of my adult life in some way or the other, and grades are a huge factor and marker of what we what we have termed to be success. We 
we have defined certain things as successes and when we have met those things or done those things we are successful and if we haven't we are failures and we see failure as a bad thing and let me just say I do not advocate purposely making mistakes uh, well actually let me rephrase that I do not advocate making harmful purposely harmful mistakes I do think it's okay to make some mistakes that will help you grow but I am not saying go out there and live a life that will bring you harm because it's very hard to overcome that uh, as as somebody told me recently life is hard enough you don't need to allow others <laughs> to make your life harder by the by the way they treat you or by the things that they do to you and I would say to you you and I don't need to make our lives harder by going out and doing things purposely that we know are harmful for us so for example I have never done drugs um, uh, illegal substances I have never um, I've never smoked I think I tried a cigarette once um, I I've had a couple sips of alcohol way 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 long time ago um, just a sip to, to somebody offered it I had a sip it was okay didn't really care for it um, had had a communion I was at a was was doing a missions trip on a missions trip in England when I was 17 I wasn't in England you can drink at the age of 18 I was 17 at the time and um, and so anytime people would you know offer it to me and these were Christians and and I said no you know I just said no thank you I didn't explain well I'm, I'm not even technically allowed to drink in your country I just said no thank you but during communion on a Sunday morning, that communion was not grape juice. It had a bite. It it was it was intense. Um, only have had like a couple sips of, of alcohol. Um, I've never really I've never really been drawn to any of that. There's never been a desire. Thankfully, um, the various positions and credentials I have held over my adult life have. Uh, made me sign something or have asked me to sign something that says I will not drink and so I've I've kept to that and for me I've not had a problem doing that um, and part of that has been there have been in my own family there have been um, uh, struggles with addiction for my family members and I think seeing that as a kid I, it just never was appealing to me and I'm so grateful for that I'm grateful not because anybody who does that is a failure or a loser. I don't think that. I'm grateful because my life is hard enough. And I can't imagine trying to overcome addiction. And for every one of you who has overcome addiction, I think you understand failure and how to overcome failure probably better than the rest of us. And you overcoming addiction and being sober you need to congratulate yourself because that is a huge huge thing I don't need to go out and live that life in order to overcome it in order to know I don't want to do it and know that that would that e even that that God would still love me in that process and that I could overcome it and all that kind of stuff those are the types of mistakes that you and I don't need to make we don't need to make life-altering mistakes 
um, just to learn from them because life is going to give you and I enough problems to learn from. It's going to give you and I enough hardship that we don't need to go out and actually create hardship for us, for ourselves. Addictions, alcohol addictions, smoking addiction, drug addiction, whatever it might be, other addictions are real. And if you are struggling with those things, that is an area of your life. Can I encourage you to lean into and to understand how Christ wants to take that and transform that part of you so that you can learn from that and grow because that part of your life will be not only an incredible testimony moment, but you will draw so much from that in your spiritual formation and it will, you will use that as a springboard for growth, but it must be tackled. It must be addressed because those addictions will keep you and I bound failure is a part of life and some failures that we get ourselves in and we find ourselves in can be ensnaring like addictions. Other failures are simply a part of the world in which we live and in order to learn and grow, we almost can't avoid some of those things. There's a passage of scripture that I have been praying through and meditating on the the past probably couple of months in my own practice of Lexio Divina. And uh, in the near future, I'm going to walk us through some of these spiritual formation practices that have been around in the church for centuries, if not the past 2,000 years. And they are life-affirming and life-giving, spirit-giving. One of those is the meditating upon scripture. And in Luke chapter 22, this is where Jesus is at. This is the Last Supper. Jesus is with his uh, disciples. He is talking about, um, it comes to the point of who is going to betray him and that there will be somebody that is going to betray him. And, um, and it, it, the discussion turns to kind of the disciples hear about the betrayal and then they hear about the fact that Jesus is, is, you know, going to die in a way. And I don't know if they fully get that. Um, and then they just start to argue about which of them is going to be the greatest. And I, I love the disciples. We're just, they're so human and we are so human. We can resonate with them, can't we? And they, so they start you know, fighting over, well, um, okay, I'm, I definitely know I'm not the one who's going to betray Jesus, but, but Jesus, you know, which one of us are, are your favorites? Is it, is it, you know, Peter, is it me, James, is it me, John? Like, are they going around and are they saying, okay, we're going to line up when Jesus gets into his kingdom, which they feel, still didn't understand was a spiritual one. Are they thinking of themselves kind of sitting on either side of him on these, these thrones and the one that's closest to him is, of course, his favorite, and it is the greatest. And, and uh, I mean, they're, they're battling this out at the Last Supper, really missing, 
missing the point. They absolutely, it, it's like, you know, the phrase, read the room. They totally did not read the room. They, they don't, don't understand that Jesus is in the midst of burying his soul and talking about his death and really this huge betrayal. And so they're all trying to say, well, it's not me. I'm not going to betray you. So, you know, what place do I get in your kingdom? And Jesus turns to Peter and in verse 31 of chapter 22 of, of the book of Luke, he says, Simon, Simon, that was a, um, his, his Hebrew name there, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Can you just picture this evil entity just almost like, like sand? like just flowing through his fingers. He's just sifting with it. He's just, I just picture this picture of this evil creature, just like holding sand and just watching as the sand is just flowing through his fingers and then growing down and picking up another handful of sand and just playing with it. I just picture that that's what, you know, this, this idea of this evil being is doing. Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, meaning he wants to have all of you. He wants to separate you from each other. He wants you to fight against each other. He wants to tear you apart and he wants to bring you down. But in verse 32, Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Now, if you're Peter, this is Simon Peter, what are you thinking right there? Why is Jesus singling you out? And notice what he says. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He doesn't say, I have prayed for you that you may not fail. He doesn't say, I've prayed that you may not blow it. Now, what he's talking about here is the time very soon when Jesus will be arrested and Peter is going to follow behind. He's the only one that does, follows behind in the shadows. And as he's there watching Jesus get beaten, people, three different people ask him at three different times, don't you know this man, Jesus? I've seen you with Jesus. Don't you know him? Peter denies that he knows Jesus to three different people at three different times during that experience. And it's predicted that he will do so. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And he goes on. He says, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus doesn't say, I have prayed for you so that you won't deny me. He doesn't say, I have prayed for you so that you won't blow it, so that you won't fail, so that you won't make a mistake. He says, I have prayed for you so that when you do fail, you wouldn't lose your faith. And that when you have come back, Despite your shame, you will encourage and lead and strengthen your brothers. Talk about an honor-shame society. They lived it. How shameful. I mean, Judas's betrayal was 
definitely the worst. But Simon, Peter, how shameful to deny your master, your rabbi. So many of us, when we fail, when we make a mistake, whether we sin or it's, it's just a, a mistake, we, we blow it. We, we turn right when we should have turned left. Or like me, we've gone driven down the wrong side of the street at night because we didn't know we need gla- needed glasses at the time. We can look at those moments, and in those moments, we can feel a sense of shame as if, man, we are, we are just the stupidest or weirdest or worthless person. And in fact, that's what, I think that's what the enemy and the enemy of our souls and our own flesh just really, really thrives on. Sin thrives on shame. Notice that it was what, it was, it was at the moment when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden. It was at the moment they ate from the tree that their eyes were opened. They saw each other and they felt shame. And they, what did they do? They hid. They hid from each other and they hid from God. The shame overwhelmed them. Instead of right then and there just going to God and fessing up and say, we blew it, God. We need forgiveness. They hid. Because that's what sin wants us to do. It beats us down. It tells us we're worthless. We're stupid. We don't deserve what we have or to be loved or to uh, to be in ministry, to have the positions that we have. There's somebody better, bigger, stronger, faster, smarter, prettier. Sin wants to keep us cloaked in shame and failure. And in fact, that's what it did to Judas. We don't know for sure whether he actually repented of his decision. We know he felt remorseful because he went back to the religious leaders and he said, I've made a mistake. This was after betraying Jesus and telling the religious leaders where they could find him. He said, I've made a mistake. Please, please don't do this to this man, Jesus. He doesn't deserve to be arrested and he threw the money back but the religious leaders didn't care they had Jesus they said you know what is it to us he felt something whether he felt whether he really I don't think he understood who Jesus really was but whether he really really felt bad about um we, we don't know. He felt bad about something. He felt a remorse. He realized that he had done something wrong. Peter, after he denied Jesus, also realized that he had done something wrong, and he went away. He went away crying. Judas and Peter both recognized that they had done something wrong. Blew it 
publicly. You better believe that the disciples heard about what Peter did. And they certainly knew and heard about what Judas did. Judas, I believe, was overcome by his shame and his guilt. And he took his own life. Peter, Peter continues to show up. The scripture doesn't tell us when he turns back or when he decides to go and be with the disciples again. It just tells us he betrays, G or he, he denies Jesus, he goes away, he hears the rooster crowing, he remembers what he's done, he's overcome with remorse, he goes away, but he comes back. He rushes to the empty tomb when he hears that Jesus is not in the tomb. He's in the upper room when Jesus appears. And he's certainly there when Jesus ascends into heaven. And he's certainly there in the book of Acts, in the upper room when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. Despite Peter's failure, despite his more than likely shame, he doesn't let it overtake him. He turns around, he comes back, and he takes a significant role in the leadership of the church. That phrase, turned back, is really the essence of repentance. Again, we, we really, we we take these words and we, we make them so big it can be hard to understand them sometimes. But repentance is not about the necessarily, or, or let me say it's not just about the initial repentance we feel and experience when we turn and give our lives to Jesus. Repentance is something that you and I are to be engaged in on a daily basis. When we blow it, we get up from blowing it. We learn from what we've done and we stop doing it. We fall down. We get up. And we learn how to not fall down again. That is growth. That is growth on every level, not just spiritually. When babies learn how to walk, they fall a lot but they keep getting up and they, they find balance and they grow and they get, their legs get stronger and they learn not to fall anymore until we get older and then we start falling a lot again. But that, that's the idea here. When you have turned back, when you have gotten up, Don't revel in your shame. Don't revel in your failure. Get up. Turn around. 
and go and make something of your life. Go and strengthen your brothers. Go and be a leader. Go and minister to others. And that's what I love. Another thing I love about this passage of scripture. It wasn't just, hey, Peter, you're going to blow it. We all know it. Just get up and keep going. No, he gives him something to do that's about others. And this is another thing that I've heard from I know I've heard from John Maxwell, and I've read it in other places, and, and, and I think even endorsed by psychologists. But, um, and I don't want to minimize serious, serious depression. Chronic and, and severe depression cannot be helped by any one just action. It is, a, it is a serious thing that needs to be taken seriously. But, you know, there are times when we're going to feel down. Maybe we've blown it, or maybe it's just life. But it is true that when you begin to think about or focus on helping other people, your mood will shift, will change. And again, I'm not talking about in the most extreme circumstances, but in general, it is amazing how much focusing on others and helping others can shift a negative mindset. Peter, when you get up, you may feel a whole bunch of shame and regret. But know that you are to turn back and that you're to go help others. Because when you help others, you stop thinking about yourself. The idea that failure is a part of life. Failure is inevitable. And that we are to learn from failure. The idea that this isn't just a self-help idea that somebody else has picked up and run with. This isn't just a leadership concept. This is a spiritual concept. Do not ever let mistakes, sin, addictions, failures get you or grip you to a point where you can't get up turn around and continue on with the purpose and the plan that God has for your life do not let it and when you feel like you are caught in the grip of that find people reach out to others connect with people Call, phone a friend, phone your therapist, your pastor, your whomever. Go outside, rake somebody's leaves, rake your neighbor's leaves in their yard. You can come and rake my leaves. Go and do something for somebody else. Do not let that fear or that failure, that sin, that shame keep you. And do not let it ever diminish or tarnish your understanding of your worth and of your value. Maybe go out and buy that book, Failing Forward. And John Maxwell, if you're listening, you can feel free to send me royalties off of the promotion of your book here. Begin to understand that failure is a part of life and it is part of how we grow in spiritual formation. Well, thanks for listening for this episode of the Nefesh Podcast. I hope you're enjoying it. Would love to hear your feedback. You can reach me at the Nefesh Podcast at gmail.com. I know that's a long title, but 
just bunch all the words together the nefesh podcast at gmail.com would love to to hear from you your story your thoughts and we will talk to you next time <laughs>